This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Come on, Rusty. Hurry up. We don't have all morning. What's wrong, boy? Whoa, hold on. Slow down, boy. What's wrong with you? What are you looking at? Oh. Oh my god. Oh god. Baltimore Police Department, Southwestern District. How can I direct your call? I don't know if you're the right person to talk to. What's the problem, sir? I want to report a man. Could you describe the man, sir? I don't know. I could barely look at him. My age, probably. Brown shoes. Hanged. Excuse me? I found him dangling from a brake wheel in a train car. Looks like he used his own belt. Where was this? Washington and Gable. Wearing slacks and a shirt like he was going to work. Send someone quick. People shouldn't see things like that. His eyes were open. Hold one second, sir. I'll transfer you. Hold, please. Friday, November 12, 1954, three days after the body of 14-year-old Carolyn Wazalewski was found on the southbound railroad tracks near Baltimore's Belvedere Avenue Bridge. A second tragedy had hit the Morrill Park neighborhood of Baltimore. The body was found hanged right across the street from the suspected murder scene, facing the vacant lot where Carolyn's blood, shoes, and jewelry were found two days before. It could only mean one thing. Riddled with guilt, the murderer had decided to take his own life. Once the body was identified, the town of Baltimore and the entire country that had been following the story would know who killed the young girl. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode on the murder of Carolyn Wazalewski. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Some listeners have been asking... 
how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. In November 1954, Baltimore was buzzing with questions about the Carolyn Wazalewski case. On Monday, November 8, 1954, Carolyn walked out the front door of her home for the last time. She left the house that evening, claiming she was simply going to sign up for dance classes with a friend. She was wearing a black skirt with an arrow pattern, a pink sweater, black jacket, three pairs of socks, a black handkerchief around her neck, and another bandana around her head for the curlers in her hair. When she didn't return after a few hours, her parents, Mary and Stanley, went out looking for her. When she was still missing the next day on Tuesday, they reported her missing. That night, when police asked the Wazalewskis to identify a body that was described as a 20-year-old woman, they didn't think it would be their oldest daughter. But at 14 years old, Carolyn looked mature for her age, and sure enough, it was her. She had been found on the Pennsylvania railroad tracks, eight miles from her home. The cause of death? A fractured skull. When Carolyn was found, her skirt, jacket, and shoes were missing. Her sweater was pushed up to her neck and soaked in blood. On her thigh, written in four-inch letters in lipstick, was the name Paul. The police were cobbling together facts they already knew. One, Carolyn left the house at 6.15 p.m. on Monday night, and sometime before 11 p.m., she was murdered. Two, because two liters of her blood were found in a vacant lot eight miles from the tracks, and her blood was found on the bridge above the tracks, the police determined she was killed in one location and then dragged to the railroad. And three, in the vacant lot where her blood was found police also located Carolyn's black loafers, an earring that matched one on her body, and a blood-stained rock. The rock was the presumed murder weapon. Police also found a screwdriver with a wooden handle, though there were no puncture wounds on the body. There was a diagonal streak from the lot to the curb, as if Carolyn had been dragged to a car. Perhaps the most painful detail? This vacant lot that was presumed to be the murder scene was a mere block and a half from her home. By the morning of Friday, November 12th, detectives had interviewed dozens of people with a few suspects, but no solid leads. Some suspects in question included Frankie, a trolley driver who Carolyn had snubbed earlier that summer. Hey, Frankie, I got a split. I'm sorry. Thanks for the ride. Hey, Carolyn, come back. I thought we were having dinner together. You can have my onion ring. There was Johnny, the oil truck driver who would meet Carolyn at her bus stop after school. Hey, Carolyn. Hey, Johnny. I thought you had a route today. I did. I got off early. Can I walk you home? I don't know. I think I can walk myself for a while. There was Paul, whose name was written on Carolyn's body with lipstick in four-inch letters. Paul is a real gone lad. Sweet little thing. There. Now I really won't forget you. I got my notes right here. I'm real gone for you, Peaches. Yet Paul was ruled out the same week that Carolyn was murdered. Police had initially looked for him in Baltimore and then discovered he already had a record. They found him at a reformatory for young men. He had the strongest alibi of anyone. He had been incarcerated for months on charges of grand larceny. The guards confirmed that he hadn't left the grounds at all in the past week. 
Polly, your pop's on the phone. I don't have a pop. Then it's your boyfriend. Come and get the phone. Hello? Is this Paul Morris? Who's this? Do you know a Carolyn Wazalewski? Carolyn Wells? Carolyn and her family often used the surname Wells because it was easier to pronounce than the Polish Wazalewski. Yes, that's her. What about her? Paul, I hate to tell you this, but Carolyn was found dead on the railroad tracks earlier this week. Do you know anyone who wanted to hurt her? Carolyn? Ah, she might have been feisty, but I don't know who'd want to hurt her. She was pretty swell. All right. Thanks for your time. Take care. You know, you could try talking to this cat named Rocky. I heard Carolyn was going out with him for a while. She was always trying to make me jealous. Rocky, huh? Not sure of his last name, but they were getting cozy as of a couple weeks ago. Thanks, kid. Stay out of trouble. The police never brought Paul into the station. True, his name was written on her thigh the night she was discovered, but he had the rock-solid alibi of being in captivity. He did know about the circles that Carolyn ran in, however, and Paul was one of many to mention Rocky's name when being questioned. Rocky was added to a list of several casual suspects, but there was one suspect in particular the police wanted to get a hold of. His name was Ralph Garrett. Garrett was Carolyn's 45-year-old neighbor, and several witnesses had reported seeing them talking from time to time. However, for some reason, the police were having a particularly difficult time tracking him down. The real draw about Ralph was that he drove a two-tone car, You might remember that on the night Carolyn went missing, Lieutenant Charles Morris saw a two-toned car parked by the Belvedere Avenue Bridge, near where Carolyn's body was found the next morning. But Carolyn's parents had never met Ralph Garrett, and none of her friends knew that much about him. He was a mystery, and while he might not have been the murderer, he could have proven to be a key witness. But then, on the morning of Friday, November 12th, the police got a shocking call. Hello, Southwestern Baltimore Police Station. Come to Washington and Gable right now. Excuse me, ma'am? There's a man hanging. Someone needs to be here. We have officers on the way, ma'am. A man just called to report the same incident. I was walking with a child and... Please, hurry. We'll be right there. The man hanging was none other than Ralph Garrett, the same man who police had been looking to question. His wife said she hadn't seen him since Monday morning when he dropped her off at work, the same day Carolyn disappeared. And his car, which may have transported Carolyn's lifeless body from the vacant lot to the train tracks, was nowhere to be found. We'll hear more about Garrett's death right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On Monday, November 8, 1954, Carolyn Wazalewski disappeared, 
On Tuesday, her body was discovered, and by Thursday, dozens of friends and acquaintances had been questioned. There was one man that they wanted to speak to, but they hadn't been able to reach. Ralph Garrett hadn't been a suspect exactly, but he was a person of interest. And with Friday morning's grim news, police wanted every single detail about Ralph that they could get. It wasn't long before the police brought in his wife, who hadn't seen him since Monday morning. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. There are tissues on the desk here. Thank you. I'll make this quick. Mrs. Garrett, do you know if your husband ever spoke with the Wazalewski girl? Which one? There are several Wazalewski children. Carolyn, the oldest one. She was killed earlier this week. I'm sure you've heard about it. Maybe this week has been a nightmare. All week I've been wondering where my husband was, and now... I understand. Do you know if your husband was friendly with Carolyn? Friendly? We lived down the street from them. There was a two-toned car, just like his, seen near where the body was later discovered. What does that have to do with my husband? What are you trying to say? Mrs. Garrett, did Ralph leave a note with his suicide? It's not really your business, officer. I'm afraid it is my business, if you want your husband's name to be cleared in the Wazalewski case. He didn't leave a note. He was a kind, gentle man. He couldn't hurt someone if he tried. Anyway, he got depressed this time of year, every year. Last week was the fourth anniversary of his mother's death. He's never been the same since she died. Now, if you find a real reason to badger me while I'm grieving, you can come to my home. But right now, I have a funeral to plan. At this point, police did have reason to suspect Ralph Garrett. His two-tone car wasn't parked where his body was found, nor was it at his house. This was potentially the biggest lead detectives had gotten since the murder. A call went out to search for Ralph's license plate. Calling all cars, calling all cars. Keep a lookout for a dark colored vehicle with a white top. License plate in Maryland. Bravo, Foxtrot, 8862. They eventually found the car. It had been abandoned two days earlier, then impounded and brought to the Ferndale police station about 15 miles from where Ralph was found hanged. The next step was to see if the inside of the car showed any signs of transporting Carolyn's body. Here it is, Dunn. You check the back seat. I'll get the trunk. Anything? It looks clean. No signs of blood anywhere. Check the interior handles, the floor, under the mats. Anything. Clean as a whistle, sir. No blood anywhere. If she was ever in this car, she was still alive. Police had to have been disappointed. Here they were with what they'd hoped were the keys to the case, and they'd come up empty-handed again. They continued to investigate, but each new discovery made Ralph seem less suspicious. Ralph and Carolyn may have known each other, but Carolyn's friends never knew anything more about Ralph, Or if they did, they weren't sharing the information. Police brought in multiple character witnesses to ask if they thought anything suspicious about the man. He was a steady, decent guy. Such a good husband. I never thought one way or another about Ralph. I didn't know he'd be capable of offing himself, much less someone else. There was one last hope to link Ralph Garrett with the Carolyn case. The two-tone car sped out of its parking spot that Monday night, most likely leaving tread marks. 
If the tread on Belvedere Avenue matched that of Rouse tires, police could place him at the bridge on the night of the murder. Detectives gathered information from the Garrett car, then searched for various treads in the street. Captain Mintians and the Carolyn Case team waited for forensics to bring back the results, hoping that they would be able to pinpoint Ralph Garrett at the scene. At least then they would know. But to their disappointment, it was not a match. Ralph Garrett had a good reputation. His car was clean. He left no suicide note. For better or worse, this was enough for the Baltimore police to leave his family alone. Ralph was never pursued as a suspect after the first week of questioning. As Ralph's name was cleared, police were flooded with leads. Not one person was a strong suspect, but a week after Carolyn's murder, 20 calls per day came into the station, each offering new clues to solve the murder. In the days that followed, Stanley Wazalewski, Carolyn's father, became more and more outspoken about the crime. He had collapsed the night he identified her body, but soon Stanley was blaming his daughter for what had happened. I told her to stop hanging around with those kids. She was asking for it. She just wouldn't listen. She brought it on herself. I'd tell her about some nice kid down the block around her age, and she'd tell me he's a square, and besides, I go for drapes. Drape was another term for greaser, the kind of kid that loved cars, greased up his hair, and got into any kind of trouble. Think of the movies Rebel Without a Cause and Cry Baby, and that's what drapes are. Interviewing dozens of young men and women who called themselves drapes, police gathered a lot of information, but very little of it was useful to the case. Once again, the detective's search for clues had come up empty. And on November 18th, a week after the murder, things were looking pretty desperate. And that's when the calls began. Mary? Mary, are you upstairs? Can you get the phone? Wazalewski residence. Hello? Hello? You know too much. You're next. Hello? Who is this? Hello? Non-stop calls badgered the Wazalewskis. Mary! I'm getting it. Wazalewski residence. Hello? Is Carolyn there? Excuse me? Can I speak to Carolyn, please? Carolyn... This is Sandra. I was just with Carolyn a couple weeks ago when we went to sign up for dance classes. Can I speak with her? How could you... (laughs) Threatening male voices, young women claiming they saw Carolyn the day she disappeared, and for days after she disappeared, calls flooded the Wazalewski home. But the Wazalewskis weren't the only ones getting terrorized. Carolyn's friends also claimed to be getting disturbing messages. Phyllis, one of her closest friends was stopped on the street. Thanks for the ride, Shirley. Are you sure you'll be all right walking the rest of the way? (laughs) It's two blocks. All right, Phyllis. See you tomorrow. Why are you following me? You knew her, didn't you? Who? You know very well who. I... I don't know. Be careful. 
You don't want to end up like her, face down on the tracks. Better pick up your books. Carolyn's entire clique was targeted. The police desperately pursued every threat and prank phone call, but to no avail. As one might expect, most of these odd messages were just cruel jokes, and tracking them turned out to be a wild goose chase. And then, on November 28, 1954, nearly three weeks after the murder, two young men found a possible clue not far from where Carolyn was thought to have been killed. Minty Enns, it's Lieutenant Joe Schwartz from Halethorpe. I have some information for you that might help in the case about that girl. I keep saying I'll take any information, but any information I get leads me nowhere. What do you got? Two young kids were hunting in a pine grove over by Washington Boulevard and the Ohio Railroad tracks. They went to throw something in the trash and found some clothes, caked in blood. Remember that Carolyn was found with her black shirt and black jacket missing. Mintians and Dunn met with Lieutenant Schwartz at the scene, where they spotted the items, just as the two teenagers described. Found in the trash can was a bathing cap, a black and white flowery dress, a pair of pink pants, a white bra, and several tissues soaked in blood. It was not Carolyn's black skirt with arrows, nor the black jacket. Mintians was disappointed, but determined. Done. Take it to the lab. Captain, that doesn't match any of the clothes missing from the Wasilewski girl. Leave no stone unturned, okay? You never know where something might lead. That was Mintian's mantra throughout the entire case. The tiniest clue would command a team of more than two dozen police. In fact, hundreds of garments with stains even slightly resembling blood were brought to the attention of the police that year. They wanted to exhaust all options. The month of November was filled with reports from people reporting anyone who acted even a little bit strange. Everyone wanted to catch the Carolyn Killer. Baltimore Police Department, Southwestern District. How can I direct her call? I've got a lead on the Carolyn case. All right, sir. I can take the note. I don't need to talk to an officer. Mintians or Dunn or whatever their names are. I've read all about them in the papers. I know who I need to talk to. They're on calls at the moment, sir. I'm happy to take the note. Oh, all right. There's a man clutching a rosary over here, walking down the street. He keeps muttering to himself, and I gotta tell you, it's pretty suspicious. The police were given the details, and they trailed the man. Just as described, he was found on the street, clutching a rosary and muttering to himself. Uh, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. He was brought in, but to no surprise, had no connection to the Wazalewski case. Days later, a different man was found staggering down Route 40, just east of Hagerstown, with blood on the sleeve of his coat. Down the same road, police found an abandoned car with bloodstains in it. Dunn, did we get the lab report yet? Just now. And? The guy stole the car nine days after Carolyn was murdered. He smashed the window and bled all over the seats. It's his own blood. No connection to the girl. Clue after empty clue came pouring in. Finally, nearly two months after the murder, just before New Year's Eve in 1954, a tavern was burglarized in the Marley Park area of Baltimore, about 13 miles from the Wazalewski's Moral Park neighborhood. The two burglars broke into the bar to steal money and whiskey. The car was later identified and police tracked them down. What's this about? This car registered? 
Of course it is. Should I stop or should we run? What do you mean, run? No one saw us yesterday. We didn't do anything wrong. Not that they know of, at least. Exit the car with your hands up. Oh, come on. Maybe someone saw our plates yesterday? Or your brother reported us. This is his car, ain't it? Do not make any sudden movements. I repeat, exit the car with your hands up. The burglars were among the most promising suspects to that point. They'd already had a record, and when police searched the car, they not only found the money stolen from the tavern, they also discovered a blood-stained jacket in the back seat. The trunk was also covered in dried blood. Well, this was nearly two months after the slaying of Carolyn. No one had been held for any significant amount of time. The police were still getting daily tips from random people trying to help, but this was a strong lead. Maybe the two burglars had somehow stayed under the radar this entire time. But unfortunately, lab results showed that the blood didn't belong to a human. The burglars had been hunting, shot a deer, and transported it in the car. They were booked for burglarizing the tavern. But that was it. Things quieted down until spring of 1955, five months after Carolyn's murder. Then, the letters began. Your daughter deserved it. And now I'm coming after you and your family. They received only a couple of short letters, and they were most likely pranks. Yet around the same time in April of 1955, a teenage girl ran into the police station in terror. Wanda Buckholtz Richmond had received a threatening four-page letter in the mail. Dear Wanda, I'm writing to let you know that I've been watching you, and you're in trouble. I'm sick of the way you treat people. It's not going to turn out well for you. You are stuck on yourself and you want your own way. You think you can do with people what you want? So did C. Wells. She learned the hard way. So will you. The letter was signed by a soldier who called himself The Ace. The return address was close to Baltimore in a nearby town called Fort Meade. The letter writer had used the Wazalewski nickname, Wells, so police figured it was someone who knew the family. They claimed the letters from the Wazalewskis and from Wanda and compared the two. The handwriting on the letters didn't match. The police warned the victims of these threats to be careful, but they reminded them that unfortunately, there were a lot of people out there who wanted to pull pranks and take advantage of a sad situation. Regardless, detectives searched for the ace, but found no one. The entire story seemed to have been made up. By May of 1955, the Carolyn stories had dried up in the national papers, but every once in a while, there would be an update in the Baltimore Sun. The stories were never eventful, just quick follow-ups on dead clues. The headlines were always, clues come up short, no leads reported, or case stymied. Not only the police, but the people of Baltimore were desperate. So desperate that the police soon found themselves turning to a hypnotist for answers. We'll find out if an act of clairvoyance finally cracked the Wazalewski case after this. And now, back to the story. In May of 1955, just when clues were slowing down again, the police got wind of a rather odd tip. 
A man contacted the press to claim to have had a vision of Carolyn's death. He said he had evidence that would inevitably lead to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. He was a dance instructor slash hypnotist working with a clairvoyant friend, and reporters would have done anything for a breaking detail on the Wazalewski story. At least one reporter from the Baltimore Sun couldn't wait to meet with him. If you say that what you know will lead to the arrest and conviction of the Carolyn killer? That's right. And you're willing to give over this information to me today? I can, but I can only do it for a price. This is very valuable information. What's the price? Two thousand dollars. Two thousand... All right. Meet me at the Enoch Pratt Library, and we'll see if we can work something out. See you there. Southwestern Baltimore Police Station, please. The Baltimore Sun reporter met the man later that day, but only after he told the police about his plans. When the reporter met the hypnotist, he found that it was an energetic man about 21 years old, wearing a brown suit and sporting long hair. Sunday night, I cast a spell on my partner and he witnessed the entire gruesome crime. And what happened? If you want to know the details, you'll have to pay the fee. It's very taxing, the hypnosis and psychic work. It was at this point that the reporter walked the man outside to meet with the police, who had been waiting there. They escorted the hypnotist to the police station, where he gave an account for free of what his clairvoyant friend said happened. Carolyn's murder was committed by a bald railroader with a pushed-in nose. He lives by the railroad tracks. He's, you know, crazy. Okay, go on. The murder weapon was a flashlight. You haven't found any bloodstained cars because the body was wrapped in a big pair of white coveralls and transported in a car like that. No blood transfer when you use coveralls like that. Okay, keep going. And you didn't find a bloody car because the body was actually transported in a railway freight car. Oh, really? That's right. And I can tell you, the murderer is getting increasingly nervous. He's kicking cats. Cats? Yes, he's hurting them. I hope we can find him soon. You got all that done? Yep, I got it. You can go home now, pal. If you want me to be available when you arrest him, I will be. Happy to help. Excellent. We'll let you know. Thank you. Is there any way you can provide me some of the fee? When we arrest your man, we will. Clearly, leads on the case were getting them nowhere. People seemed to forget that there were real victims of this crime. And just when the case was going cold once again around Memorial Day 1955, a man walked into the southwestern Baltimore police station to confess to the murder of Carolyn Wazalewski. Can I help you? I'd like to speak with a police officer. What is this regarding, sir? Captain Mintians, if he's available. The captain is quite busy. Can I help you with something? I'm here to make a confession. I killed Carolyn Wazalewski. Um, just stay right here, please. I'll get someone for you. Captain? Captain? There's someone here to talk to you. Can't you see I'm busy? Take a message. I don't think you'll want to do that. I'm sure I do. I'll get back to them later. There's a man who says he's here to confess to the killing of Carolyn Wazalewski. 
You're here about the Wazalewski girl? That's right. You want a lawyer present? No, no lawyer. Right this way. Done. Record this, would you? This guy says he's about to confess to the Carolyn case. You're kidding me. After all this, I'll be right in. John R. Smith was a 31-year-old painter who surrendered himself to the police on a Saturday night in May of 1955. I didn't know her well, but I had seen her around. I thought she was interesting. I would pick her up from the bus stop. What bus stop is that? On Olive Street, right where I live. Olive Street, huh? How'd you meet her? Around, you know? We met at the drive-in about a year ago. She was with a young guy, but that didn't stop me from talking to her. She looks swell, as the kids say. Yeah, I guess they do. So tell me what happened the night you killed her. I met her on the street at about 6 p.m. We went for a long walk. We had relations. And then I threw her body out of the car by the train tracks. You killed her by the train tracks? That's right. By the Belvedere Avenue Bridge. Done, you got that? I got it. It's all down. Excellent. Mr. Smith will be right back. It didn't take long for the police to break down John Smith's confession and realize that it was completely fabricated. They held him at the station with charges of drunkenness and disturbing the peace, or perhaps because he had made up the whole story. In the morning, the police brought John into the interrogation room. Mr. Smith... Can you think of any reason why someone would make up an entire confession that would render them a murderer? Especially when the murder in question is an open case? A very sensitive, six-month-long investigation of an innocent young girl. Any idea? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I admit it. I didn't do it. All this is make-believe. I didn't kill her. I didn't even know her. Why did you waste our time? I did it to get square with my wife. She and I were fighting. I got loaded and wanted to show her that I could do something important. She thinks I'm just worthless. But I'm not. I can do plenty of things. Plenty more than painting the side of buildings. Plenty more than drinking myself silly on the weekends. For his false statement, Smith was given a year's probation. Court medical officers diagnosed him as a chronic alcoholic. Smith went home to his wife and promised to be good, claiming that he wasn't just interested in stopping for a year, he said he wanted to stop drinking for good. He figured it would be good for his health. It was back to the regular routine of getting occasional calls on the Carolyn case. A mix of pranks and people wanting to be helpful. Once again, police had nothing. They were weighed down with new cases, but they doggedly tried to do right by the Wazalewski family and find the girl's killer. With no new leads, police called in an expert from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Never before in Baltimore did police use a polygraph test to further any investigation. But on multiple accounts, detectives in the Carolyn case were unsatisfied with testimonies. Their plan was to call select people back in for questioning and have the entire session monitored and recorded by Harrisburg's lie detector expert. Invented in the 1920s, the polygraph continued to be improved through the 1940s. It was a simple machine that recorded blood pressure, pulse, and respiration, and correlated that to truth-telling. 
The results were left to interpretation. Sometimes a person telling the truth might be nervous, and they could come across as lying. Or someone giving false information might be very practiced at doing so, and they remain calm. Both have happened in police cases. So despite the fact that the lie detector was relatively new and therefore people doubted its usefulness, the polygraph gave Baltimore police a whole new angle on questioning people in Carolyn's case. So in 1955, they started to call people back in to tell their story. It wasn't mandatory, but if someone didn't come in for the test, it didn't look good. The police found out that way too many of their witnesses had been lying. It wasn't necessarily that they were hiding something, or even that they had done anything wrong. The people of Southwest Baltimore, like John Smith, the painter, just wanted to be part of something important. I guess I should admit, I'd never met her. That was a lie. No, I didn't date her. But she did ask me once if I'd buy her a soda. She never spoke to me. She never even sat next to me on the bus. And there was one witness who led the police to aggressively pursue a trolley driver, Frank, in the first days after the murder. She'd made up an entire lead. All right. No one ever came up to me and told me that if I knew Carolyn, I'd be next. I'm sorry. I helped the police as much as the others did, but I didn't even get my name in the papers. Some of the other kids even had their pictures in. The lie detector, which was supposed to help clarify things, only led to more confusion. And then, a new string of murders happened that made police think that Carolyn's killer had struck again. On June 15, 1956, the murder of Mary Elizabeth Fellers and Shelby Jean Venable brought back the horrific experience of Carolyn's death. The two young girls, aged 19 and 16, were found raped and killed in Baltimore, not far from where Carolyn lived. Police believed the killer might be the same person who killed Carolyn. He or she remained at large, and in 1959, another murder occurred, this time on a larger scale. In January 1959, the Jackson family, Carol and his wife Mildred, plus their young daughters Janet and Susan, disappeared after a family reunion in Apple Grove, Virginia. A relative on the way home from the same reunion passed by the Jacksons' abandoned car. She called the police and a massive search effort for the family was launched. Nearly two months later in March of 1959, two men found the remains of Carol Jackson in a ditch. He was slumped over the body of his young daughter. Two weeks later, the remains of his wife and second daughter were found. All of this set off a new wave of investigation for the Virginia, D.C., Maryland area. The senselessness, the target age of the daughter, and the method of killing had police wondering if Carolyn's murderer had evaded capture for six years. They feared that they had a serial killer on the loose. Eventually, the Jackson family's murderer was found to be a man named Melvin Rees Davis, Jr., He was also the main suspect in the murders of Mary Fellers and Shelby Venable, though he was never charged for those murders and was never linked to Carolyn's death. The Carolyn Wazalewski case remains open to this day. More than 60 years later, the Wazalewski case is still written about in the papers, 
In total, police have questioned an estimated 1,500 people in the case. Maybe it was Ralph Garrett, the neighbor who committed suicide. It could have been any number of scorned boyfriends or a jealous friend. Or perhaps it was the young man she testified against in court, solidifying his guilt in a carnal knowledge case. Ralph Garrett is the most likely suspect uh, for a couple reasons. He went missing the same day that Carolyn was murdered. He had spent enough time with Carolyn that multiple people witnessed them together, even though her parents had never met him. It was as if he had something to hide. But what about the tire treads? The ones on Ralph's car didn't match the ones by the Belvedere Avenue Bridge, left by the two-toned car the night Carolyn was murdered. True, but even now, more than six decades later, forensic scientists debate the accuracy of using treads to identify a car. Not only does the tread have to be a good sample, but the pattern has to be identified and interpreted by someone with a trained eye. For Ralph to hang himself directly across from the murder scene seems to be sending a message. But a 45-year-old man with no connection to Carolyn, other than the fact that he was a neighbor, like many other neighbors, would have no reason to kill an innocent 14-year-old girl. I think that the killer was a snubbed boyfriend who lost control. But Paul was locked up, and most of her dates were one-offs, not necessarily the intimate, involved relationships that would put her in danger. All the more reason it was someone she dated. If Carolyn didn't know the killer well, she wouldn't know what he'd be capable of. Carolyn was described as popular, high-spirited, boy-crazy, good-looking, and older than her years. Like many so-called drapes at the time, she was looking for a place to fit in among the squares, the nerds, the socias, and the loners. For years, she had flirted with danger, but no one realized how it would end. She wanted to feel liked. She wanted attention. And unfortunately... She got more than she ever could have anticipated. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Terry Selecki and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. 